Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, a Mitra podcast. What are you doing this week, Mike? Man, I had a blast with you yesterday. Seeing the Furman family and the kids at your new house. It was just awesome, like I say all the time. Beautiful family. Love every time I get to see you guys. And thanks for cooking. Yeah, it was really nice to have you guys over finally. Um, Love to... Love hanging out with Rosie. I can't believe we, it's been since May you know, or June. Or, or anyways, it's been too long. Right. Been, well, I've seen you, but hanging out with your lovely wife, it's been too long. So, yeah, so it was nice. Thanks for the uh, chicken piccata. A little chicken piccata and some risotto. Risotto, yeah. Master chef over here. When's the food podcast going to start? Oh, that's the real podcast I need to start. <laughs> Something that I can just talk about without any prep work, you know. <laughs> you mean you don't read books and books and have notes and oh no I, I, and... I do I, I do that too so I should have written a limerick about your dinner last night mm, that would have been good <laughs> instead you got another a better limerick so well we've got one today because Chris what are we finally getting to that we put off a couple of weeks here yes it's about a month since the book came out when this when this episode will drop so Plenty of time for you guys to have read this book, digested, hopefully read it a couple times because we're we're going deep. Right. We're going deep. We you thought we went deep with Kyle? We, we're going even deeper. We're covering it. Enemy at the gates, part one, right now. Free flowing. Talk about the pot, plot. Talk about some points. I don't think I don't. We can't just do like Kyle and jump right to the end. You know, we 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 we'll, we'll have some sort of a <laughs> chronological order here. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this book with you finally. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think I read it four times now, getting ready for this pod. And of course, we wanted to talk the big points with Kyle, but there is a whole lot more going on in such a short book that we haven't even covered with Kyle two weeks ago with Rod last week. Which, by the way, if there was a reason to delay talking this book, it was just because we had an incredible opportunity with an amazing guest, and we just wanted to bring that to you as soon as possible. So if you didn't yet listen to our talk with Rod Gregg, the gun guru, the advisor to Kyle on the Mitrap series about all things weapons and tactics, awesome dude, had a great conversation last week, and that's just another reason we uh, are coming a, a bit late to you with Enemy at the Gates breakdown. Yeah, no, that was a great, great chatting with him, and he seemed to have some some funny insights into their relationship and how things break down. So I love that. Uh, right, he he really was hung up on that crossbow scene. That that still cracks <laughs> me up. But yeah, and we did get to bring up the water cannon though, because Lethal right. Agent had the crossbow, but Enemy at the Gates had a water cannon. I feel like. Kyle now just has to find some crazy tool for Scott Coleman to throw at us. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to dig into not only that, but that that entire scene you were talking about where it it had this gravitas. Yeah, anyways, all right. So, let's let's just dive right in. Well, you know, every time we review a book, I like to share my thoughts in the form of a limerick. And we already had a double limerick with Kyle a few weeks ago. But that's just not going to cut it for our part one and part two book review. So I've got one ready for you today. All about Enemy at the Gates. Let me know what you think. There once 
was a power couple called the Cooks, bringing to Washington more than just slick looks. A trillionaire to foil their plan. Nicholas Ward is just that man. But something tells me there's more in the Cook playbook. A Mitrap book set in Uganda. A badass opening starring Mukisa Adanga. Chisholm and his research. Scott and crew up on a perch. A controversial ending. I'm actually quite fonda. <laughs> quite fonda. And I very much wanted to work in Wakanda. But it just I just, it didn't, just didn't work. Trigger. Yeah, didn't it just work. didn't work. Maybe maybe in seventy years these will all IPs will have merged together into one thing and <laughs> and Mitch Rapp will be working as with the Avengers, you know. Um that Mitch was Rapp would he'd be pretty good with the Guardians. Uh, he would get along with uh what's his name? Star Lord. Uh, no, he'd punch Star Lord right in the face. <laughs> yeah, that was a little facetious. <laughs> uh he he he's he's like uh oh, we should do this one day, like Compare Mitrap characters to uh, to the MCU. Yeah, he's he's kind of like Tony Stark. <sighs> Playboy, though, I don't know. But he's more of a badass, like Captain oh, he's America. Right? He's yeah, but he's Cap, but he's Cap who can curse, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. A rough around the edges, Cap. Ugh. Mm. Yeah, that'd be an interesting Anyways, one. Anyways, if if someone has has a better idea for this, please hit us up. We're missing on it. Maybe Blade. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Or Dude, Deadpool. This is, Deadpool. This, this has got to be a wrap on. Rap. Yeah. No, we got to. Anyways, we're 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 getting we're getting way yeah. off the rails, and it's only five minutes into this pod. Speaking of wrap on wrap, though, quick shout out to our patrons. We love you guys. We cannot bring this podcast to the masses without you. So, thank you for supporting us. And if you want to hear extra off the rails content like you just did for the last five minutes, we come out with a monthly and sometimes twice monthly bonus uh, podcast all about Mitrap and our random musings about anything really mostly yeah, covers much. we talk we talk a lot about covers on the rap on rap series for our patrons yeah, if, so. you, if you if you think we don't talk enough covers on the regular podcast become a patron and you can listen all about it anyways so you like to start off with the limerick i gotta kick us off with the goodreads yes you do this one has a pretty high goodreads I'm going to guess that's a statistical anomaly because of the newness. This, I guess the same thing happened with uh, Total Power, right. um, where it was like 4.7 when we did the, the, when we plugged the number, and then it's since gone down a little bit. Sort of, they all settle in right around that 4.28 to 4.31. Anyways, this one's 4.55, 4.7 out of Amazon. It's getting very, very high ratings. Very high ratings. People, people seem to like it. Although Mitch, and Rod seemed to say that, you know, there are there are people out there that have emailed Kyle, let them know that they, they don't love it. They get the emails. We're going to talk about that. I'd love to read some of those emails. Anyways, the Goodreads summaries goes like this. Mitch Rapp has worked for a number of presidents over his career, but Anthony Cook is unlike any he's encountered before. Cunning and autocratic, he feels no loyalty to America's institutions and is distrustful of the influence Rapp and the CIA director Irene Kennedy have in Washington. Meanwhile, when Kennedy discovers evidence of a mole scouring the agency's database for sensitive information on Nicholas Ward, the world's first trillionaire, she convinces Rapp to take a job protecting him. 
In doing so, he finds himself waking, walking an impossible tightrope, keep the man alive, but also use him as bait to uncover a traitor who has seemingly unlimited access to government secrets. As the attack on wards become increasingly dire, Rapp and Kennedy are dragged into a world where the lines between government, multinational corporations, and the hyper-wealthy fade, an environment in which liberty, nationality, and loyalty are meaningless. Only the pursuit of power remains. Wait, so I think we should just go ahead and start out. We, we got to talk about... Do you want to do opening, or do you want to talk about the cooks? I was going to say, like, that entire... It's like a trailer, right? Reading that in my mind is like a theatrical trailer, just dropping the mic, getting ready for this book. And there's nothing bigger than the cooks. I feel like it, we have to talk about them, right? Yeah, I think I think let's just go dive. We can we can touch on the Chisholm stuff, and I want to get into that opening because it's it's really cool. And uh, you even mentioned this to me as you were reading it, and I noticed it right away. Like these long chapters, we we get. Right. super long chapters that is not normal i feel like it's not normal for kyle i can't remember vince doing it that often maybe the prologues were were longer at times but not this long though no this very long like i think like on on listening to audible like the prologue itself was 30 minutes you know like that's a long chapter for for right. a trap novel you know we're not talking about george R. R. martin where you got 45 minute chapters yeah and it's awesome action, though. So so we're going to get to the action, right? And that prologue was phenomenal. But you're so right that overshadowing not only this entire book, but almost everything about where the Mitrap universe is headed is the cooks. Because like Kyle has said, Mitch and particularly Irene have worked for presidents that they've had a good relationship with or that they've... Uh, built up a good relationship with, even if they weren't on the good side in the very beginning of, well, either, right? When they saved, who was it, Hayes in the bunker at Transfer of Power. He was indebted to Mitch for the rest of his term. And then Alexander, when they solved the hit on his wife in the motorcade when she blew up, I mean, all the presidents so far have owed Mitch and, and Irene a debt of gratitude. And here... We are just totally shifting the landscape. And who's the president in term limits? Is that Stevens? And that was Stevens. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, and he was the one who was like the only like ske- sleazy one, right? We didn't really meet him that much. It was more so like the people he surrounded himself with that were right, Stu Garrett and yeah, and Mike Arthur Higgins and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, but anyways. Mitch, Mitch never had to deal with him. No, right? Mitch didn't deal with it. But Irene did. Irene did. Irene did when she was younger. But before she really had any power, she was still at that time being influenced way more by Stansfield as her mentor sure. than sure. what the president – like Stansfield could have insulated her from whatever the president's antics and bullshit were. So right. I feel like neither Irene nor Mitch really – Stevens wouldn't have influenced them in any way. They were never on the page together. Right, right, right. right. But it's this is a, just a major shift like – I think of, and we talked about this with Kyle, the first like era of Mitch is in the Vince Flynn days, you know, his beginning, right? And then there's an entire, like the American assassin kill shot up to transfer power with the gap. But then most of his career is this world of Al-Qaeda and, you know, the the basic Middle Eastern terrorist, right? And Kyle even had to 
had to bring that into the modern age with ISIS, but it was still the same basic kind of enemy. This is like a third phase that is brand new and that America is dealing with in our world, and now Mitch is dealing with in the Mitch Rap world of what happens when you can't trust the institutions of the presidency and of the American government itself. I'd argue we've been in this third phase ever since Kyle sort of shifted the enemy away from some sort of Middle Eastern threat to like a Russian threat to like more better aligning us with what's, you know, going on now. And I'm surprised that we haven't seen like a Chinese threat. I think we've mentioned that like on a previous pod, how, you know, maybe that's to come. But yeah, I, I feel like we're now, we've gone through Russia. We then went to like a plague uh, with tied with Middle Eastern uh, terrorists. Mm-hmm. And then we had, the last book was essentially a domestic terrorism um, with... Power station. Yeah, power station. And then now we're going completely where we have this person who doesn't care about the institutions, has a, has a wife who, you know, it very, very much so is like House of Cards-esque, where you have this right. couple coming in, they don't care about anything. And to me, these little tiny things that Kyle sprinkles throughout. I think the first chapter we see Irene, or right after the prologue, we see Irene like going to the White House. And she notes all these changes that he's made to like decorating. Right. And she noticed, like, the, she says, like, the only thing he didn't change was the Resolute Desk. And then when we go back, when she goes back, like, or I don't even think she doesn't go back, but it might be Nash halfway through the book. He notes Dundesk has, has now gone. So, like, he's slowly eroding away, little by little, these American institutions, these symbols of, of, of what America are in, in the White House. And they're just supposed to mimic, like, what he's doing to the world. He wants to slowly chip away at control. And I can see, maybe not, we haven't seen it so far, but I think that's where Kyle is heading. Right. Right. Yeah, I love how you picked up on the changes to the White House and the Oval Office becoming more modern, uh, chic, or industrial-looking. Like, the curtains, that to me was one of the details. You know, you think of these very warm curtains in the Oval and this the, the Oval carpet, right? Or the rug in the center with the seal, and all that's gone, and now it's polished, almost like a steel, minimalist, modernist architecture. And what you're saying, and you're right to bring up Catherine Cook, the wife, uh, because they're two peas of a pod, you know? Right, right. And here, listen to this. I've got a quote here on Mike Nash rather early on when he first, yeah, he first meets up with Rap to bring him to the White House because the Cooks want to meet. They want to meet him. They want to meet Rap, and they really want to kind of assess him. And no kind of are you with us or against us kind of vibe. But here's what Nash is is reading rap in on about the cooks. Quote, what I can tell you is that she's a full 50% of that team to the point that it's a mistake to think of the president as one person. It's more like Anthony Cook is the right brain and Catherine the left. Irene doesn't like them. Did she tell you that? She thinks they come off as a little ambitious. This I can tell you. Anthony Cook feels like he's the first president of the new era. He understands the shifts in the geopolitical landscape, in technology, and in culture. And while he's informed by history, he tends not to look back too much. His eyes are locked on what's next. 
He still wants to knock 250 years of dust off the country and put us firmly back into a leadership position. So, I mean, you don't like them. You're set up not to. But at the same time, you get this sense that Nash is, they're kind of rubbing off on him in a sense of at least they're bringing us forward. At least they're going to put power back into the seat of the American government and show the world that we are keeping up with technology. I mean, look at how much we're criticized for. Our infrastructure is falling behind while, you know, the Chinese are building all these high-speed railways or our educational institutions are falling by the wayside as other countries' universities and medical systems are advancing and modernizing and industrializing. You kind of get the sense that Nash thinks the cooks might be the people to push America forward. Yeah, and there's multiple times where he brings up this idea that Kennedy doesn't like them. Mm-hmm. and But he never comes out and says, I like them. He then just immediately after he says that, there, there's that scene... There's another quote where I think he's like on the phone with Mitch. Uh, and then obviously at the very end, he, he, in their car ride, I think he talks about the cooks with, with Mitch again. And he, he says like, Irene thinks they're, you know, whatever. But I think that, you know, he's, I feel like every time we we go through, like there's three instances where we go there, he, he's finds himself more and more in bed with them. And he's sort of justifying to himself why he's doing this. You, you know, at the time when you read that quote, we don't yet know that he's, I mean, he doesn't even know that he's working for them yet, right? No, not like, at all. Um, but over time, he's sort of rationalizing with himself why he's drifting away from Irene and saddling up with the cooks. Yeah. No, you're right. And of course, Nash is the one explaining this to rap. I think what I just read is like chapter it's very early on. Yeah, chapter four. I mean, that's some foreshadowing there that rap that Nash is going to be torn, knowing right. that Kennedy and his friends don't like the cooks. But his job, right, is you serve at the pleasure of the president, and that he is looking for redeemable qualities in what the president and his wife are doing. But before we move on from the cooks and what they're bringing to America, a couple of fast facts about them. Anthony Cook is 44. So we have a rather rather young president, was the governor of California. That tells you something. He rose from the turmoil of Christine Barnett's alleged suicide at the end of Lethal Agent. I would imagine also the turmoil of total power. Sure. But they needed a strong hand to fill that void. And so and also he has broad shoulders, a narrow rate narrow waist, and a forty-four a head still full of hair. He's described as the, he looks like the man with all the answers, very imposing frame. So Chris, with this description, who comes to mind when you were reading about Anthony Cook and Catherine Cook? Let's talk about the power couple. Washington loves power couples, right? Who were you picturing? Who were you visualizing? It could be an actor, actress, but it could just be anybody. Is there a politician that you kind of had in mind? Hmm. I don't try to like place politicians in when I read. I try to keep them out of my mind when I'm reading something for, <laughs> for okay for pleasure. The only reason I say this because I think of like a Mitt Romney just in in terms of looks. Yeah, not in, in terms, terms of, of looks, uh, not in terms of politics, but just this kind of. I guess he's kind of goofy. I don't know. Yeah. So I 
was thinking like a, I guess a little bit I because obviously the whole California connection. Right. I was thinking a little bit of Gavin Newsom, but mixed with like uh, what's the guy from? Oh my god, I just had his name, Rob Lowe. Like I, oh, I think of yeah. like Rob Lowe. You know, this oh, like yes. very. A younger, because I think Rob Lowe is like 60 or something right now, or in his late 50s. Like West Wing Rob Lowe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's pretty good. A couple of actors, names I just threw out there. George Clooney. Like younger. Younger, younger, younger of course. Yeah. Kurt Russell, or Anthony Hopkins, younger. They're a little more, I guess, maybe round. I, I, I would want one of them, but just a little taller, a little like... Less stocky, but a little more broad, right? But they like the way they describe him is that he's very attractive. That's like they, at least that's what right. I got the gist, right? So oh, so strike George Clooney and Kurt Russell. Then you're right. Oh no, they I mean they don't no, fit. The that's bill. The, that's really good. Kurt Russell's good, like young <laughs> young Kurt Russell, dirty dancing Kurt Russell. What about Idris Elba? Oh, there you go. At his there current age, or even even five ten years ago. Like a stringer bell, like when he, when he's when he's in the wire. Um, Tom Hardy's too short. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey's too suave, maybe. Uh, Tom Hiddleston. Mm. And he he plays that mischievous. Very, but he's not. Like, this guy. This guy also has to be. You're describing broad shoulders, like big. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Ben Affleck. True, true. Ben true, Affleck true. has like can can get he did got wide for uh, Batman, or that movie where he was the basketball coach, but he was a drunk, and he get yeah a little, uh, uh, the way the way there. the way way back yeah. <laughs> well, how about this? So maybe this is just maybe Anthony Cook is kind of generic in that sense. Yeah, no, he like, is. I think, I think that's we just listed a ton of actors, and I, none of them really sticks out to me as like who he'd be. So, what about Catherine Cook? What about the uh, because they have the sixteen-year plan? So she is just as cunning, and you got to have somebody with just as much a presence. And she takes Mitch aside in this scene, and she, and you could tell her questions are very leading, trying to get him to commit. We're trying to tease out how loyal he's going to be to them. So well, you need somebody who's got got some edge. Charlize. That's exactly what I was thinking. Or or Robin Wright, but Robin Wright's older, so like you, you mm. need someone younger. Because I think Robin Wright plays that character amazing on House of Cards. What about Jennifer Aniston right now? Did you watch the morning show? That's what I'm thinking because she kind of in the morning show is like this professional kind of very hold your uh, own. You could have her uh, co-host. What? Uh, what's her name? Um, Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. Mm. Oh, she's kind of annoying. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, this character is supposed to be kind of no. But this this character this character is like super smart and calculating and Jamie Lee Curtis. Younger. Yeah. Uh, what's um what's her name from uh Big Little Lies? Zoe Kravitz? Hmm, I don't know. All right, I, yeah. I we're going to have to hear from you guys, the listeners. Tweet at us, let us know. The, you know, someone cooks. inevitably every freaking couple of weeks, someone on the Mitrap Facebook group does fan casting. I don't think I've seen anybody post about the cooks yet. So maybe we'll uh we'll get on there and and see what the 
what the masses say. There you go. So we want to hear from you. Hey, so raps at the White House getting introduced to them. He soon after or actually at the meeting earlier before this, when Kennedy's meeting with Cook, we get another new character, Nicholas Ward. So while we're on the fan casting, you know, bandwagon, anybody stand out to you in terms of looks for this world's first trillionaire persona? So I don't think Kyle described what he looked like, right? No, he really didn't. Yeah. There's not much description. In my mind, I didn't think of him as, I thought of him as an attractive person. But you could go the opposite way and, and tag him as a Bezos or a, I'm, I'm pretty much saying that Bezos and Elon Musk aren't attractive people, but, uh, you know. He's gotta be an Elon Musk, right? Yeah, but the way he like, I don't know. I, I see, I feel like he could be, George Clooney could be him. Okay. The only description we get, I just found it a little gray at the temples and he has an everyman smile. Kind of disarming. I, George Clooney could be Nicholas Ward easily. Yeah. Dude, look at Ben Stiller right now. Have you seen him lately? I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. That's, that's what I kind of think of. That's what you picture, Ben Stiller? He, but he would be cracking jokes. He would be cracking jokes. You know what? Maybe you're right about George Clooney. Maybe you're right. He's very charming, disarming, not overbearing. Ben Stiller's too gray right now. But yeah, no... Uh... I think I think George Clooney is our Nicholas Ward. There we go. I think you're right. Or Elon Musk. I, if for some reason, I just I just think of Elon Musk. But yeah, he's a little more personable. He's got to be yeah, more. Elon a, is so awkward. He's so awkward. And exactly. so is so is Bezos. They're both and like They're Steve goofy. Jobs was awkward. You know, like this person is cool and but yeah. is super intelligent. Maybe like a Tim Cook then, in that regard. Right. Right. More of like a Tim Cook. More like a Tim Cook. Tim Cook, George Clooney hybrid. There's there Nicholas go. Ward. There you go. But he's he knows Kennedy. They he does. They meet each other in the Oval, and the president, I think, is kind of surprised that they seem chummy. And Kennedy said that she brought Ward in on some bioterror threats. So possibly lethal around lethal agent, she was communicating with his people. And Imagine, like, at the same time, him. she's, like, mm-hmm. coordinating that, like, mobile command center. Like, right. he's got, you know, because obviously we find out later that this, another character we haven't mentioned, which is David Chisholm, um, which we don't, uh, we don't have any, uh, any, like, conclusion with him at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, uh, but we find out that Chisholm's character was new, what is it, Serena Miller, like, the, the scientist from Lethal, uh, Lethal Agent. Agent. Sienna Miller. Yeah, yeah, so that's Sienna Miller. There you go. So, yeah, there's there was like this... Uh, I like this like fleshing out of the backstory of Nicholas Ward. I could be wrong, but that final chase scene where they think the truck with the infected meat supply is going to get across the border, I think Kennedy is like on the comms calling in a bunch of favors with different people. She calls the Mexican government and the federales to help out. Right. I think there's a line where she even says like, she was calling some other contacts that most people didn't know she used at the CIA. Mm, I, I think there, there might have been a scene that she was talking to some private industries like Nicholas Ward's people. Yeah. But in the end, she works with him pretty cordially. They both want the same thing to help people to protect the country, but more so Nicholas Ward wants to protect humanity. Irene obviously wants that, but America first. 
And so they have a healthy dose of respect and a working relationship with one another. You see that going anywhere? I was going to ask you, how do you, oh. Ooh. Yeah. Could be. Well, so I think like the long game here, right, is. Right, right, right. You know, just to to throw it out there, I think we're going to see Mitch and Irene leave the CIA. I think think that's what's going to happen. I think this series needs a some sort of a, a big change. Yeah. And I think that's the, a big enough change, you know, it, it happened in the, in Brad Thor did this when he had Scott, you know, six books in lead the secret service. Cause essentially he was, he wasn't even doing stuff with the secret service anymore. He was, right. you know, whatever. So he had to, it made sense. And now this makes sense for, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but that's just, it seems like where, that's where this is going. And the most likely thing, which I think someone even says in this book, Irene will get an eight-figure job becoming right. his head of security. <laughs> yep. That's when when Anthony Cook asked Nash, what's the worst-case scenario? And Cook's like, oh, darn, what if she leaves to take a seven-figure job and works against us? And then Nash is like, no, she's going to take an eight-figure job and not just work against us. She's going to work for the only person who has the power to stand up to us, Nicholas Ward. So I was going to ask you, what do you think about these two – Kyle's really pitting, you know, these two against each other, right? He makes some direct sort of enemies in this novel where uh, the cooks even, you know, essentially take out a hit on on Ward and pitting this ultra-rich person who is, I guess, has these dreams and aspirations not only for the United States but for the world and and free health care and you know, state-of-the-art technologies and everything like that, you, you know, this utopia versus the cooks who are these autocratic pragmatists that are going to, you know, take over and lead the United States into the, you know, the, the future. Like, what is, what is, what do you think Kyle's trying to say about these two, you know, mm. things? Good question. I th- I think he's doing two things. One of them, I think, is just how he sees the world. He's mentioned multiple times this global ruling elite kind of class. And Nash even brings this So they would both be part of that, no? They would both be part of it, right. But there's a big difference, right? And this goes to my second point, which is I think he's trying to, one, say what would a rising global elite look like, whether it's part of the U.S. government or whether it's supranational and these people have powers outside of national boundaries. So I think he's just setting that up to say this is basically a possibility for the future, if not the near future, this rolling global elite. But the second thing I think he's doing with that and perhaps is more important for these stories is he's putting – Mitch, Irene, Nash, Scott, Marcus, everybody in the middle of that and saying, what are you going to do? And I think that's the three book arc. This book is the intro of posing the question and putting the stakes out there. What are you going to do with your skills? Because Claudia, Irene, Mitch, they're they're, Scott, they're highly skilled. What are you going to do in a world that the power structure shifts that way? But it's really interesting because Nash, in his monologue towards the end, does say, I want to be on the right side of this. And I want my kids to be on the right side of this because the world is going to be divided into haves and have-nots, ten times more extreme than what we have right now. Mm 
I mean, I think of like Brazil and the favelas, right? Nash is talking about the majority of people. I think he even says like 90% of humans are going to struggle to survive. And another 5 to 10% of humans are going to sit behind their walls in their posh, comfy houses and apartments and lead this lavish lifestyle. And with that writing on the wall, Nash says, I want to be on the right side of that. And I want my kids to inherit the right side of that. Where Mitch and Irene, I think, want to struggle against it or want to get in with someone like Ward, who's part of that 5%. He's the 0.001%, right? Sure. The, the richest man ever. Zero, 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 but they want to use that power not to further entrench these two, this divide, but use that power, use that wealth to essentially end it. And like you said, utopia or bring more equality. And so I think the more important thing Kyle Mills is doing here, not just writing and creating that world, but creating that world and putting, you know, kind of the microcosm of Mitch and Irene in it and saying, what are you going to do next? And to me, that's the whole next book. And I love it. Yeah. It's no, philosophical, it, but it's also, it's also small, it is. right? It's, it's big very, and it's, it's small. It's heady. It's, it's heady. And I like that. But, and that comes to a head when Mitch is testing Ward. Yes. I was just going to bring that up to you. I'll let you bring it up. But Catherine Cook tests Mitch and says, are you for us or against us? And by us, she doesn't mean America. She doesn't even mean the office of the presidency. She's like saying, are you with us husband. personally? Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mitch is testing Ward to see if that's what his MO is going to be. And instead, Ward is answering the questions, right? Like, no, I'm not going to kill innocent children. No, I'm not going to order a hit, even if it meets our objective on, you know, these slaves in the camp in, in Africa. Like, do Mitch is think, really testing Ward. Do you think Mitch, yes, Mitch was testing him, but do you think Mitch actually believes that what he was suggesting should have been done? Because I think he, I think he does. I think he's wondering himself, but more importantly, he's wondering: Do I want to work for a man who's going to order me to easily wipe out this village, including the child soldiers and the you know teenage sex slaves, or do I want to work for a man who's going to take that mission? And let me do my job in a creative way to get the job done without having to make those sacrifices. Like, how easily is Ward going to say, green light it, use my technology, use my weaponry, use my guys, go wipe out these people, save David Chisholm. You know, get, I think they're looking for a phone, right? Getting Alma's phone so they could find right, a mole. Right. I, I don't think he cares about the answer so much as he cares about the thought process of the person in power. Yeah, no, and it's, you know, bringing in multiple times where he, he forces him to make, like, tough calls, and we see, like, this, we see that he has a, a conscience, and right. he doesn't just, even though he has the money to, to immediately, you know, send in helicopters to, you know, order Mitch and pay Scott Coleman to go in and just kill everybody in this village, but he doesn't want to do that. And right. he, I guess he could go, quote unquote passes Mitch's test because I think Mitch thinks higher of him after the these the series of of meetings that he has in Africa with him forces Mitch to do the hard you know go in the hard way which I don't know I also think that Mitch kind of likes doing things the hard way right <laughs> I guess it gives him a thrill you know it it it's it would be easy to 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 do it do it a different way than. Than, right. than the way he ends up doing it. So, right. 
I, I guess we should probably get back to this uh, Chisholm character who's like yeah. the, the what kicks everything off. Where you know, in this this great opening, where we have you know Wonder Boy virologist working for Nicholas Ward in Uganda because there's this you know apparently there's a group of people that have uh, some mutations that help them like find this vaccine. Yeah, I asked Kyle about how he didn't. I don't think he really understood what, or I, I didn't. Not I don't think he understood. I I didn't get across my my point that well enough. I so there's a couple scenes, a couple of sentences very early on where mm-hmm. he decides to bring up COVID, bring up coronaviruses, and I know he's talking about like within his because he he obviously had a book about coronaviruses two years ago pre pandemic. I just wanted to know how comfortable he was like doing that because I, when I first read those two two lines and or heard them I like cringed a little bit I, I was flinched. like oh no yep I was like oh no I I I hope I hope I hope we don't go into this because yeah we don't need a pandemic book no I I, I I what is this what is this um and like I just hearing the word coronavirus even though I know it's not COVID-19 it just like Ugh, I you know, right. just I I didn't want it in my novel. I didn't want it in my novel. It's like when I'm, I'm I watch fucking Law and Order SVU, <laughs> and they put on masks, and then like they they show a tracking shot where they're walking in, and they have a mask on, and then they just boom take it off, and then like they have a whole the whole scene is without the mask. It's like you know just just it, it doesn't you don't need it you don't need it yeah I don't You're know right. I don't get it uh, dude I'm I'm tracking with you I felt the same way. When it was early on, we're in Africa with David Chisholm. Oh, I'm working on a vaccine to end coronaviruses. I'm like, no, 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 no. But it quickly moved on. That Yeah, no, it did. Thank God. There was so much more to the story beyond that. But yeah. And then another one when, and I don't know what up, what was up with this, when there's an, a sickness going around South Africa with Claudia and Anna and her friends. Oh, I'm like, I was like, no, 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 please. Please don't like have her get sick. Like have her like, is he starting to say there's like another variant of some disease and he's going to bring that up later. It just, every time germs and and illness and this vaccine came up, I, I kind of cringed a little bit. I'm not going to disagree. I was just like hyper, like aware of it, you know? Right. But it, would it be, would it be right to not have that? in a world that is dealing with it, can you just completely avoid it? Like, I know the point of a lot of the genre is escapism. So, sh- but mm, I don't know. I, I I could see why you'd want to at least address it and then move on, which is what he does. I guess the only, like what he does have going for him is that he predated the pandemic by a year and had a right. book about a very Yars. similar virus about Yars, you know? So uh, I, I see where he goes, but I, I could have seen him not trying to address it at all, you know, or not even right. bringing it up, you know, but anyways. Well, hold on. Here's why I moved on so quickly and ended up loving this opening scene, because even though they talked about Chisholm and his research and he's working on this vaccine, Mukisa fucking Adongo comes in. Mm. And this great dude character. Is we get him for a chapter. G. Absolute G. Only a chapter. Right. It's a shame. But you, he's one of those characters, and this is very Flinian. I think Kyle pulled off a Flinianism. He gets very you to Flinian. love a character, know exactly what that character represents and stands for. Then when you lose that character, 
it means so much. Very often TV, books, you lose a character who only had one page, you don't care. But what Vince Flynn did was you lose a character that you've only had a couple of pages of and it, it makes you care about it and it sticks yeah. with you. Yeah. And that happens with Makisa. Yes. And you can feel this tension that, you know, he's had with, you know, this other character who I thought Gideon almost kind of cool until, until the end, which was kind of, we're going to get into that. But once rap has him, like he sort of just lays over like a dog. Like I, I, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, that's but true. Anyways, um, this Gideon Alma character is so feared and, you know, as a cult leader and has these essentially trained animals that he hops up on drugs in human beings and will do anything for him. Thinks he's like literally Christ re- reborn on mm-hmm. earth, right? He's like, he is, he speaks with, for God. And you feel the tension that this Odongu has had with, you know, they're, they're, they're not, I don't know, friends, but you know, they were village college mates, buddies, college yeah. buddies or, or village mates, whatever. Yeah, and, you know, just the plans that he had and how he set up Chisholm for success, yet he knew that he had to, in order to save Chisholm, he had to spare, you know, give over his life. I don't know, this whole chapter, the the, the opening scene was just written really well and very compelling. Like, it was almost like you could just leave it as a short story, right. um, you know, and then right. you don't know, like, what happens, and then boom, that's it. But I, I really enjoyed it. You are totally right. This being a a short story that might not even have anything to do with the Mitrap universe, just a tale of, you know, this village. It would be phenomenal. And you're you're right, this foil of the two characters because Adongo to me, he's like this general. He wants to protect this hospital because he knows how important it is. I think he understands the global implications of David Chisholm's research. He knows sure. he's working for Nicholas Ward. But Adongo doesn't really care about that so much as this hospital is helping the villagers. Yes, they're doing research. Yes, they're collecting data. But they're also bringing the supplies he knows his country needs to move forward. And so I, I feel like Mukisa Adongo represents so many leaders on the continent in many countries, not just Uganda, but many countries who, if the power structure gave them an opportunity at leadership or the the institutions allowed them to thrive in a, in a powerful way in their countries, there could be major change, right, for a lot of African countries. But like it shows, a warlord who has drugs and weapons and child soldiers on his side can silence the Mukisa Adangos of the continent, can silence those powerful, trained, humanitarian generals willing to use their armies for good and protect this hospital. But those voices are all too often silenced, whether it's by outsiders, right? Colonization and, and white Look domination. Look what's happening to Rwanda right now. Or, or internally, right, by the power structures and power vacuums. And so speaking of Rwanda... Gideon Alma makes me think of this confluence of three figures or three events, the Rwandan genocide and how, how many innocents were lost in that, but also how the future of a country or the future of an entire region was lost in that. And then also Gideon Alma is like, it reminds me of Joseph, Idi Amin, but like Idi Amin, right. And, and a more modern one, Joseph Kony, 
the warlord right. who did terrorize this region of Africa. And remember the Save the Children Foundation, all that crazy stuff. Right, right, right. But there was that Joseph Coney, just one of these warlords. And then a third kind of angle is Jim Jones in Guyana, which I know is South America. But the way he started this cult and the sacrament is like the Kool-Aid, you know, where drinking the Kool-Aid right, comes from, that right. mass suicide. He's getting all of his people to rely on this sacrament as a drug, which is really what, – what did he describe – what did he call it? I forget the actual name, but like a, an hallucinogenic that basically takes your mind out of your body. and, and It's like your, speed and heroin, right? Like right. mixed together, like speed or cocaine mixed together. Yeah, like – and – it's funny when Chisholm's lab can like synthetically make it like ten times better than than what they're getting. Yeah, no. there's there's some little nuggets sprinkled throughout that were that were funny. Yeah, but yeah. This this Alma character. I don't know. Do you want to just jump to like where? Where, where do you want to go with this? Because so David Chisholm is the the foil that you know sets the plot in motion, right? Right. He's there. We have this Alma character. Alma comes, and we just think it's, you know, they're like, oh, Alma, he, he, why, why is he coming? And, like, obviously he got bored or whatever. We find out later that he was sent there by, through the Saudis. The Saudis, um, yeah. And so did, did the cooks just sign off on it, or did, I, I, I was sort of confused about that. Did, did they sign off on it, or, or did they tell the Saudis to have it done? I don't know about this particular scene, but later on, the cooks get involved because they give the Saudis the intelligence on Nicholas Ward's compound. Right, right. So, at so this but stage, for the, the original setup, is it just the Saudis working by themselves and Anthony Cook knows about it, or does he even know about it? I get the sense that America and Anthony Cook may not be directly tied to what Gideon Alma is doing now. But they are choosing to take the side of the Saudis who are saying, we know our oil is going to run out. Right? Why, why do the Saudis want this warlord to kill David Chisholm? They know their oil is going to run out. And the royal family bet heavily on pharmaceuticals. That was like their next generational game plan for staying in power and keeping their wealth in a post-oil dependent world. And David Chisholm and Nicholas Ward's researched research represented a threat to big pharma right how how all of these medicines that big pharma has gotten filthy rich off of would no longer be needed because the vaccine would eliminate many many diseases and the rest of their research had the potential to upend the medical field so now the saudis backup plan is foiled so i feel like we know catherine cook is hedging with the saudis they're also adjusting their portfolio to say the same. And so they need Nicholas Ward and David Chisholm out of the picture, both personally, because that was Catherine Cook's, you know, finances. They say, oh, if Nicholas Ward were to come back from the dead later on, they'd lose like $26 million overnight. Um, and that was $26 million they got through betting that Nicholas Ward's empire would collapse and, you know, the status quo would would return. So I think at this point... It's not a direct connection to the Saudis sending Alma after Chisholm, but later on it will be when Alma fails, doesn't capture Chisholm or Ward, that they need additional intel, and that's when they turn to the Americans. 
Right. Which, in turn, which we're going to get to, is why Anthony Cook taps Nash to hack the CIA to be the system. Mole. Yeah, yeah, to be the mole. So, do you think that that leading up to, you know, the, the whole backstory with the Cooks and their money and and being in bed with, you know, they, they essentially everything that Ward stands against, they are betting, you know, against him. Do you think that was well drawn out, explained? To me, it felt a little bit rushed. I think it might be my biggest criticism of the book, but it's rationalized or justified by knowing Kyle had to cut the 10 chapters. Yeah, I, I guess. When are we going to talk about that? Should we, should we just talk about it now and get it out of the way? Yeah, because he did say part of that those 10 chapters were backstory. Sure. Particularly backstory on the Cook's and Ward's relationship. Something about the one of the Cook's children. So I, I think all that backstory being removed, and I think the Cook's game plan was also to bring down the American democracy and set up an empire almost like Putin has in Russia where he could stay in power forever or his family can, right? And so I think the cook's son was going to play a role in that. And the son having a relationship with Ward was going to play a role. So I think Ward was a threat on multiple letters, uh, levels, not just financially. And when all that got cut and the subversion of American democracy got cut, I think you had to have another reason the cooks would want to take down Ward. And so finances were just the easy, you know, it was the low-hanging fruit. Right. That's how I feel. What, what do you think, you know, you can just speculate for, you know, we'll, we'll spend a minute on this because we'll never know. But um, what do you think the inciting incidents was to cut those 10 chapters? I get the sense that the Cooks had a cult of personality. And they use that either a direct insurrection or they use that to manipulate an election like, I think there is a one-to-one -to, -one to either January 6th or a contested election. Mm. I, I almost feel like we we didn't – the prologue wasn't the original prologue. Like, it, right. it, it, the book started with the election, you know, and essentially picked up with not the last book, but the the beginning, the end of Lethal Agent almost where well, I guess you had to – but, you know, just more mimicking right after Christine Barnett's death and this right. rise of this family, obviously past total power, but, you know, how they get to the like, I think we, we see, I, I, at least in my mind, I think we see more of that. But anyways, we, we'll, we'll move on quickly because we'll never, we'll never know. But um, I think that's you're right. just my, my conjecture. Yeah, I think you're right. What if we just kind of wrap up part one here with the rest of the Africa um, action because the book sure. does open with quite a bit of action in the first third where David Chisholm escapes the hospital thanks to Adongo's sacrifice. Adongo actually knows he'd be tortured and spill secrets that David Chisholm was in this holding cell underneath or this hiding place. And so he rushes Gideon Alma with a knife knowing when he rushes Gideon Alma, his guards are going to automatically kill him, shoot him. So... Makisa Dango's dead, which gives Chisholm time to escape out the rear of the hospital. They have to run through a fire, two of his assistants. And so it's him, uh, one of his, his staff who is 
healthy, this this Chinese lady who was actually really good and her, her survival instincts kick in right, growing up right. on hardship in, in the farms of China, how to survive in the jungle. But then there's another Italian, Matteo Ricci, who got burned and his leg is infected. So they're hiding in a cave. They're barely holding on and they know Alma's troops are out there searching for them. And they're trying to tease them out. They're calling their name all night long. They know they have to shelter in place. And this is basically when Cook wants to make sure he's dead. And Cook wants to use this as an opportunity to show his good faith towards Ward. Right. So that Ward doesn't completely turn on him because the world's first trillionaire, very influential guy. If he's against you politically, it's going to be a tough election. And... So he wants to get on Ward's good side by sending a rescue squad, but he doesn't actually want them to be successful saving Chisholm because then his investments go down right. the tubes. He, this was kind of interesting. He sends, you know, because we we only find out we we get this like brief interlude of one of the leaders there, and he's like, "Why am I even here? Is it because I voted for the man? Like my direct commander doesn't even know like I'm here. Like it's just like twelve random people." And he even says like, "We're gonna walk around the woods for three days." And that's it. And like, yep. you know, we're, we're, we're going to, my mission parameter is not to save David Chisholm, but it's to get my men out of here alive. Yeah. But we, it was funny because I think later on, Mitch is, Mitch hears about these Americans that are in the, the forest, uh, in the jungle because Mitch goes over there because Ward comes to him and asks, or Ward comes to Irene and asks him to, to go over there. Cook doesn't want, that's the one thing he doesn't want, is he doesn't want our best asset going over there and finding Chisholm, because again, right. he wants Chisholm dead. Mitch goes over there, and then he starts asking around, because he comes up with this plan, because he doesn't want to interfere with them. So he calls, like, Africa Command, and Africa Command's like, I have no idea who's there. Like, you would think, he's like, are they Delta? Like, he thinks, you know, it's just a bunch of ragtag soldiers like it's so obvious that yeah. he, he didn't want them to be caught like it's just what you you could have done a better job hiding that i felt like it's so interesting and i i remember now cook goes a step further and says i can prove that i actually was committed to this mission if we lose american soldiers he actually wants these guys to die over there because in the public eye or Nicholas Ward's perspective, it'd be like, wow, Cook really made a sacrifice. You know, he actually was willing to put American troops out there to try to recover David Chisholm. And 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 in Cook's warped mind, it was a show of good faith that Americans died searching for his man. And he thought that would endear Nicholas Ward to him even more. Really twisted. He, he like literally sacrificed American soldiers. Yeah. Very twisted. But that dude, you know, I forget his name, such a minor character, but when you're on the ground with him in Africa, you kind of really come to like him because he goes from this point of yeah, the president do. picked me. I wonder why. Raha, I'm going to go in like Rambo. Then he slowly starts to realize and humble himself. I'm a nobody. Why am I here? And he's like, this shit is actually fucked up. And you're right. He tells his men, nobody can repeat this once we get out of here. But I'm I'm defying orders. Like I'm I'm going to order you guys to stay alive and get out of here and not to find David Chisholm. 
So he, he's kind of a bold guy to defy orders, but still trust his men and like read in his men on the situation and, and be real with them, you know? And that's what the only thing that saves their life. Plus Mitch choosing to help him. Right. And so Ward just shells out all the money, hires Scott and his boys. Mitch shows up after a, a brief stint in, in going to South Africa, where we see him be a family man for a little bit. We got to talk what about did, that. What did you think about this? Uh, you know, we, we we'll, I guess we'll bring it up again later because we get even more of it once he goes back. But um, yeah, he even you 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 mentioned you have a quote for this. So you, can you bust that out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but long story short is Mitch goes in. They drop these caches of supplies, yes. medical supplies, weaponry, and communications gear. They're they're te- calling out the f- the telephone number using these hidden codes. Each cache has a um a riddle tied to it that yeah, only liked, David Chisholm uh, would be able to find the coordinates. This coordinate is the seventh number of your of your social security number. Like that yeah. that was cool. Like that was I really like that. Uh, yeah, um, walk in the direction that you went to your favorite lunch spot. You know, in right. whatever city you worked in, go twenty paces. Uh, yeah. That was a Kyleism. Remember, we talked about these. I know he, he didn't think that we had that, but you know, it's I definitely have seen it before with him. Yeah, he does those little little riddles. He also likes another Kyleism we should look for. He told us he likes the quirky characters, and I feel like between this Matteo Ricci guy with the infected leg, Gideon Alma, even quirky as can be in a life or death kind of way, he's giving us plenty of quirk here. And then this this random. Chinese scientist and researcher who ends up being a beast in the woods, living off the right. land. Right. I, I'm wondering if she's a secret plant in the David Chisholm research and her true colors and skills as a spy came through in a matter of life or death. And she's really, you undercover. think that's a, that's a long play. I don't know. It could be. Is she a plant in mold? I just thought it was so weird when he's like, Oh, she's not going to be much help in the jungle. And then she's the one who saves the day with, with these skills. I wonder if it's just. I think it's just. I think it's more so just. You know, you you never know somebody until you know somebody. You know, that's true. That's true. And she grew up in hardship and right. knew what it was like to work the farm. Yeah. But yeah. Meanwhile, so that's how they get David Chisholm out, which pisses off the cooks. He's ordering Nash go tell he he's ordering Kennedy call Mitch back. I don't care what you have to do. I do not want him there. I do not want Scott involved. And basically, Irene's like. I can tell them that, but they're private citizens that I have no control over them. They're not working for me in this capacity. And that pisses off Cook. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention about that whole scene where the Frank Mason, our, uh, Fred our, Mason, our helicopter, baby. Fred, Fred, is it Fred Mason or Frank? I don't know. Either way. Fred Mason. Fred Mason. Uh, hero. Some, some hero act uh, antics with the helicopter. Oh yeah, getting Mitch in, getting that. Uh, I'm like that brought me back to some Flinian details of like inner workings of helicopters and you know having to go in and and how you like have to get the uh, what is it a stretcher like in there. Yeah. I don't know. That was it was really really cool. Yeah, they were on like a cliffside. Right. So Fred Mason starts swaying a dangling wrap with the stretcher in like a pendulum motion. And he eventually like slams him into this rock, but Rap's able to release and land on this like cliff dwelling at this cave entrance. 
And eventually Rap gets uh, all three of them on the stretcher. And Fred Mason is able to make that badass move and pull out. But it leaves Rap on the ground. Yeah, that was super cool. I did want to ask Kyle about how he came up with that idea. And there's this right after that, uh, Rap quickly shaves. So that way he can can, like blend in. Right. And And he he rubs mud all over himself. Yeah, rubs mud all over like a little bit of blackface. Uh, (laughs) Um uh, so he can blend in with uh, this. I thought that was an interesting detail. And it was interesting that they say with him operating less in the desert, getting a little older, his skin He's did. lighter. It was, a, it was a lighter complexion. That's why he had to do that. Yeah. And because Anna, want, uh, not Anna, Claudia has him put on SPF 70 all the time. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, that was so funny. How Claudia says like all these bullets fighting all these crazy terrorists are not going to get you killed, but skin cancer will. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. <laughs> She's still bugging his ass. And I want to get to, you're right, I want to wrap this part up with um, Mitch as the family man, because that's a huge part of what Kyle's doing in this book. Perhaps one of the biggest transformations for Mitch in this book is is his personal life. But one last thing as they're escaping the jungle is that Mitch and Scott save the day on the ground where they find... So Chisholm's already gone, and Mitch decides... Out of the goodness of his heart, he'll try to save the American soldiers, but also because he wants to know more about where their orders came from. Right. Yeah. So he does want to save them for a little bit of self-interest and in getting info on who the hell they are and what they're doing. But did you like that scene where Mitch is in the front, Scott's in the back, and they both have the infrared strobes, and they get the whole line of soldiers to stay between them? That way, the gunship can see their infrared strobes and just light up everything else around them. And they're just walking through the jungle and literally 360 degrees around them within just a few feet, just a few feet is being, being blown to smithereens. But with these infrared lights, they're perfectly fine. Not getting hit. I thought that was just nasty. That was was really cool. I we didn't touch on it, but like er, the earlier chapter where Mitch and like the, Occam's uh, grenade, you know, stun grenade that that eventually gets gets brought up later, and the 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 sniper, the sniper drone that can turn any average person, any average shooter into a Charlie Wicker. Um, there's some pretty cool tech uh, that that Kyle weaves into. I guess we we touched on it. If people want to listen to more on that stuff, we talked about it with uh, with Kyle's gun guy Rod Gregg last week. So uh, go listen to that pod, but. Yeah, there's some pretty cool tech in this book. Yeah, and what a great opening scene, too, because it's just Scott and the boys joking around, trying out this new tech and just cracking laughs. So I, I like that the first rap scene in the book is a humorous one. I feel like that was refreshing. And they all ride the lightning together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Rap pushes the button. Don't push the red button. He pushes the red button. <laughs> oh, that was funny. So, I mean, we open with rap joking around with the guys at the DARPA facility. But then after this action sequence on the ground in Africa, he's again a new person. He's got to get back home. And the whole time he's thinking I could just be in South Africa with Claudia and um, not just Claudia, but with Anna and the, the things Kyle does here, I just think are brilliant because I want, as much as we love the Mitch kicking ass and taking names, 
can Mitch Rapp deal with a child? <laughs> because Claudia's out and Rapp has to drive her home. And on the car ride home with Anna, she's talking about her new friend Amale that she's friends with in South Africa. And Rapp has the idea to pick her up so she can come over for a sleepover. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Here it is. Would it, So Claudia asks, would it be possible for you to pick up Anna's friend Amale and drop her off at home? Rap was about to give her a simple yes, but he was suddenly invaded by some kind of evil domestic spirit. Why don't we just keep her for a day or two? Anna would love it, and it would take the pressure off of her mother. Claudia was silent for long enough that Rap thought he might have inadvertently disconnected her. Finally, she spoke. Are you serious? I was thinking that, but didn't want to suggest it. Two girls are four times as much work as just one. I crawled through the jungle, being hunted by an African death cult. How bad could it be? Oh, much worse than that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so out of character for Mitch to do this. Because you got to think about it, right? Mitch had a daughter. Or no, had a... Unborn daughter. Was going going to have a daughter. And now he had to skip. When How old is Anna when, when... She's brought back in Survivor. Seven? seven? Six or seven, I want to say. I think, yeah. So he's had to, you know, shift to now dealing with, the, I don't know how old she is now, but um, yeah, it's funny because I think feel like Anna has aged, but Mitch hasn't aged. <laughs> right. And Kyle's Kyle even, that. even said that, right? You right. know, you're going to have Anna going to college, but Mitch is still the same age. Um, right. Yo, listen to this one. This is later on, probably where we'll pick up in part two with Mitch and Maz and Scott protecting the ward compound in Uganda. So Rap is definitely, you know, on the mission, right? He's on the op. He's planning the mission. But he takes a phone call (laughs) from Anna because Claudia is homesick. And Anna on the phone is complaining that she wants to ride her bike. But Claudia says, you can't ride your bike. And... She calls Mitch, and he answers while he's planning this op. And he says, if your mom says to stay off the bike, then stay off it. And you should be helping out around the house. Was he really doing this? Was he really standing in the middle of nowhere, Uganda, surrounded by mercenaries, lecturing a seven-year-old about personal hygiene? The family man crap was starting to get out of hand. (laughs) He even knows. He even knows it, it can't go on much longer like this. No, but he but he loves it. He's too trying. Because he's trying. He, he's trying. He wants to ride his bike. He wants to ride with Anna. I mean, he he wants to train for that. Like you could tell, he doesn't want to train to be better on missions like this. He wants to train and get physically fit, so he can go cycling in South Africa. Like right, right. his his life goals have shifted. You could see something like um, you've seen the professional, right? Mm-mm. Or Le- Leon, like the the movie with um, Natalie Portman as a really good, a really young. She's the I don't know. If she's the daughter, or like just a no. So it's it's the French guy who's been in a he was in Mission Impossible. I'm I'm really bad with with his name. Anyways, look up the professional. Okay, um, it's a movie. He's a he's a, a sniper assassin. He trains Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman's like super young. Uh, highly good movie. Anyways, I bring that up because you could see like Mitch <laughs> maybe uh, training Anna, you know, not not like, but subtly, not not blatantly like okay. trying to make her into a uh, an assassin, but you know, like subtly doing stuff, you know, you know, to 
obviously getting her stamina up, getting her bike, you know, maybe teaching her how to shoot for hunting purposes, stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. That would that would be funny to see. I could see she's him switching dogs. more to that. I know she's got dogs. She's got the dogs on her side. Deal the dogs, so she understands some protection, you know, and yeah, training them. Yeah, so. but the evil domestic spirit is definitely creeping, creeping in. into rap psyche. Creeping in. <laughs> That's funny. Well, one last thing I wanted to bring up, right? So we are stopping essentially right around uh, chapter twenty. In chapter eighteen, we mm-hmm. find out. Mike heads to the the White House. He gives the report that Mitch has saved just, we're, I don't know, this is like a, we a third to the book, not even. Mm-hmm. And we we essentially find out that the cooks are bad, like right right away. Yeah. That leads me more, more credence to my idea that the stuff that got cut is from, was supposed to be the beginning. Because I mm-hmm. feel like this chapter was always there. And... To find out that they're the they're bad, like I just I felt that it, we found out that they were we found out their motives really quickly, um, yeah. and I, I again that just thinking it through on on the fly makes me feel like we were supposed to see we weren't supposed to see this right now we were supposed to see this sort of either halfway through or or two thirds through so anyways I just I saw that when I when we were about to cut here yeah so I guess that's the point where the cooks are considering using Mike now that they know Mitch successfully foiled their plans of having Chisholm dead and possibly Ward captured too. You know, that's what the Saudis wanted. That's what the cooks wanted. Now that that's foiled, yeah, you you kind of get inside the cook's mind of, we need somebody on the inside. Irene was no help. Irene had a chance to prove she's loyal to the cooks by actually pulling Mitch out, because the cooks are no dummies. When Irene says, "I, I can't control Mitch and Scott," they're oh, they I don't a- know where he is. I can't. I, I he won't answer my phone calls. I'll, I'll I'll leave him a voicemail and tell him to you know come home. The cooks are no dummies. That signals they're done with Irene right there. Right. Uh, sure. Sure. They're done. So I think this is where, you know, we're kind of cut scene to now. They're going to want someone on the inside. We already heard Nash giving his rundown of them and their worldview. We already know he's Mr. Goody Two-Shoe America. He might not see that side of the cooks, but at one point he even says, and this comes much later, but he says, like, fuck it. If the American president wanted a file, I don't care what the file's about. I don't care how they're using it or who they're giving it to. I, I am a deputy director of the CIA. They want a file? I give them a file. I think that's also, I mean, all right, anyway, we're, that's him justifying to himself. That is him justifying to himself. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Once we he got realized, a lot to get to. I know we have a lot to get to. We uh, this is going to be a we we've just gone for an hour and twenty minutes, um, and we're only a third of the book, guys. This book has a lot. It has, a um, lot. and it's a short. But it's going to speed up. It's going to speed up. So I think where we pick up is David Chisholm and Ward are saved. Well, David Chisholm is saved. We know rap. And Scott are on the ground in Africa in co you know cahoots with Ward. We know the cooks are pissed off about that and they feel threatened. They know Irene cannot help them, and we know Claudia and Anna are back home in South Africa. And Mitch is kind of longing to be with them. And geez, I cannot believe how much we still have to talk about in this book. Things are about to heat up. 
Alright, so next time we will be finishing up the book, giving our final readings. We said it at the top, I'll say it again. We need to thank our patrons, Special Operator Sherry F., our Special Agents George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform, or find us at MitchRapPod.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Guerrilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.